Hi, this is Smriti Kirmanandan, your host for Health Forward Podcast. One of the most important things you can do for yourself is to take care of your health. Your road to discovering an all-inclusive, empathetic, and innovative healthcare ecosystem starts right now. Social determinants of health are conditions where people are born, live, grow, work, and play. 80 to 90% of public health issues are driven by these social determinants of health. One of the leading healthcare organizations that has laser focused on this space is Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser has invested close to $3 billion on community health to lift and shift the way we view one's health. Today, I would be speaking with Dr. Anand Shah, VP of Social Health from Kaiser Permanente. Anand, welcome to Health Forward. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So we'll deep dive right in, Anand. So what has inspired you to be in the field of healthcare? Well, thanks for asking. Um, I, I'm an emergency physician by background. I, I grew up in the South as a child and sibling of, of immigrants. And growing up, I saw family members really abroad who didn't have that adequate access to healthcare. And I was thinking about healthcare as an opportunity to to serve, what I didn't realize um, sort of at that age was how much of those same issues existed in the U.S. And I, as I went into emergency medicine, I was attracted by the fact that you treat really people the same, independent of their access to insurance, whoever walks in the door. But I learned quickly um, in my practice and residency that equal treatment really meant different outcomes for different people. And what often led to them doing well or not was less a matter of the medical care that they received in the emergency department or in the hospital and more about their social conditions, the social networks that they had, their housing and transportation and food supports. And I, it really let me understand that there are bigger issues at play and I wanted to think about how I might support them. And so I feel very lucky to work on some of the issues that I do at Kaiser Permanente today. I'm glad you have you here making an impact, sitting right in the front row. So 40 to 55% of health outcomes are related to social determinants of health. Before we deep dive further, would you like to share with the listeners about the impact of social factors? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I remember being a, a third-year medical student in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I, I was taking care of a patient in the emergency department who'd been in and out of the emergency department and hospitalized many times with a rapid heart rate. And it became very clear in talking to him that what landed him in the emergency department was when he would lose the access to have his medication and to be able to afford his medication. And that was often related to changes in his employment status. He worked for the county, changes with his insurance sort of credibility. And it, it really brought to life for me what I was talking about earlier about one more example of how his, his health and, and really then the cost of his care was influenced not by the prescription, but by those broader social factors. And what I've come to realize that's really struck me is that I think intuitively we understand that health is interconnected and our social, our physical, mental health all influence our overall health and well-being. But what struck me is just how prevalent these issues are. What we found is that um, 
in America, 68% of Americans endorse having had a social risk in the past year. That's things like inadequate um, food or nutrition, access to safe, reliable housing, transportation, and that they make trade-offs between those basic needs and their health and well-being for themselves and their family. We repeated that survey at Kaiser Permanente, who by definition, our members are insured. So one would think that the numbers might be less, and we found 63% of our own members endorse having a social risk in the past year. And that's true across lines of business, whether you're on Medicaid or Medicare or employed by a large employer group. And so anyway, this is what I bring into the conversation today. No, that's an incredible amount of metrics. And what you're really requesting for the healthcare system is to do is to look at a patient at a 360 view and not in a very siloed, fragmented fashion. Kaiser Permanente is considered to be one of the leading healthcare organizations addressing social determinants of health, having invested around $3 billion in community health. What are some of the nationwide strategies are you currently working on? Yeah, well, I'll start a little bit because we talk, we'll talk a lot in the rest of our conversation about different programs we're doing to support our individual members and patients and their social health. So I want to start with some of the investments we're making in the community. And we know that if you only work at the individual level, you're going to sort of be on the hamster wheel. Uh, you not dealing with the sort of root issues that create and perpetuate inequities and disparities in our society. So we are, through our Thriving Communities Social Impact Investment Fund, we've invested $400 million to support safe housing in underrepresented communities and communities of color. We're working to increase access to healthcare through safety net partnerships and through our own healthcare system. And we focus our community health portfolio in some different areas around economic opportunity, safe and affordable housing, as I mentioned, environmental stewardship, safe and successful schools, working on upstream policy solutions for cities so that we have equitable policies advancing health, Medicaid, charity care, and then the social health programs that I'll talk to you more about. Wonderful. This is a perfect example of when I think we have to lift up everyone else if we need to be stronger as a community and more empowered. So that's brilliant. So thank you so much for being with an organization that's focused in community health and just the social impact. One of the key ingredients for successful integration of social health into healthcare practice is adding SDOH to the Center of Health Data Exchange. What are your reflections in this space? Yeah, my it's a really insightful question. And my reflection is we didn't understand those needs earlier, the prevalence of social risk in our own population. And so we're early in that journey, but it's key that we have to understand the prevalence and distribution of social risk in our population and where people spend their time. It is a very small percentage of time that people are interacting with the healthcare system. And if we don't understand where they're going in the communities, the supports they need in their homes, it's going to be very difficult for us to provide that 360 degree support and holistic care that I think we all desire for ourselves and our families. And data is on that journey. Um, there's advancements like the USCDI standards and groups like um, the Gravity Project that are helping move the field forward. Um, but I would say we're still very early in that journey of investing in, in data. 
Absolutely. So are you aware of the AB 133 bill and what are your thoughts on would it make it really successful? Because it, it's a big heavy lifting um, we're trying to do with that bill. Thank you for the question. So I, while I don't know all the details of that specific bill, we are very supportive of this direction. And we know there's different states, California and others, who are really advancing um, efforts to embed collecting and sharing social data across sectors, as you um, alluded to in your question, that's embedded in through Medicaid contracts. Um, we're also seeing that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, NCQA, that creates sort of the HEDIS metrics, the Joint Commission, um, are all sort of supporting this venue. And so I think um, we are very supportive of the direction. Um, and I think one of the key opportunities will be to make sure that all of these um, pushes from different regulatory accreditation state bodies are aligned so that we don't have competing data requirements uh, that are moving us directly forward. But in, in general, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time and an exciting development. Absolutely. As a physician, what are some challenges you see when screening a patient to determine their ecosystem? Yeah, it's another really important question. And, and I'll take that both from the perspective of the provider and uh, or the physician and the patient. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that patients report that they want this information to be understood. I think 90 plus percent we've seen in one of our surveys want to feel like this information is asked. However, a lower percentage report wanting to be asked or um, being comfortable being asked in different settings. And it really varies whether they want to be asked by their physician or MA or in digital self-service tools like telephone or, uh, or sort of email or telephone or text or websites. And so really what I'm describing is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all on what the patient or the individuals want. And that itself influences what how our care delivery system, how our physicians, other care team members need to interact. We also know that primary care providers and our, our physicians, our frontline staff are taxed. It's a really busy time and adding one more task can be a huge ask. So really our charge is to think about how can we gather this information, um, sort of respecting people's individual desires to interact differently. So across different modalities, in person, in telephone, digitally, either before visits, maybe on new member onboarding, so that there's different doors to walk through based on your circumstance. And making sure that that data, we're not really putting it just on the physicians or nurses or MAs to collect, but that they can use that data to inform their care decisions, which we know can be enriched. And maybe the parting comment I'll make here is that we've learned that physicians, nurses, and patients are all more satisfied with their care experience when they work for a system or a clinic where the um, tools are available to capture and support these conversations, as long as it doesn't, you know, interfere with the sort of direct interaction of the patient-physician sort of relationship. Yeah, I love that answer for two reasons. One is because you're asking that this focus on SDOH, it's a shared responsibility. And the second one is how do we empower our healthcare workforce with the right technology so they can do their work better, faster, and 
with more intent. I love that answer, Anand. Screening SDOH is a vital step in the process. How should healthcare organizations convert this into an immediate action? It's really important for us to understand that we can't collect information and not act on it. There's a moral responsibility if someone tells us that they're in need and they want assistance, that we want to be able to help them. And that's actually been one of the historical barriers in this field is people, physicians, care teams, others didn't feel adequately equipped to either capture this data or then address those needs in a meaningful way. And there's been a lot of advancements. So at Kaiser Permanente, we've partnered with um, a technology platform called Unite Us and launched uh, really across everywhere we exist, a network of community resources um, that are available for individuals, whether they're KP members or not, to be able to understand and connect to services within their own communities. And that they can do that through our website, they can do that through a call center, they can do that through care teams who can make these referrals through the electronic health record um, and otherwise. And that capability is incredibly important. Whether you've partnered with Unite Us or other similar technology vendors or have community health workers or the combination thereof or different approaches, being able to support people in that moment, I think is, is incredibly important. And that's one of the reasons that I think that this work will continue to evolve because we're still learning how to do these connections in a way that support our community partners and don't actually create further strain on the social safety net that has not been historically well-funded or supported to do this work. Absolutely. But expanding on this further, once taken an action, how do you believe we can sustain this shift from a state of enablement to complete empowerment? It's a really interesting question. And I'm going to maybe take this at two levels as well. Um, One way that we think about empowerment is really helping empower our communities and and those voices and in empowering them not just in theory but also with resources and one of the roles of the healthcare systems i think is to help bring our voice bring our data shine a light on some of these challenges and resource gaps and so when we are helping connect people to different types of services, let's say food services in a specific region that might be used by a specific demographic group that resides there, we want to then use that information to help the community catalyze change. And we are both spending our own dollars to support community organizations in our communities who are doing this work to address gaps but also bringing other funders and other agencies, state agencies to the table to think about what are the upstream infrastructure investments needed. That's part of what led into the sort of $400 million housing investment or funds that we have to support racially diverse organizations and driving economic opportunities, small businesses. And I'll say that part of your question is how do you empower the individuals? And taking a really human-centered approach so that um, all of our programs are both designed with the sort of patient or human at the center and that we have checks in place throughout to make sure that this work is equitable and centering that voice is critical. And the last thing I'll say is, and it's 
hard to do so, and we're still learning how to do it right. I don't think we've mastered the art, but that is very much the intention in our areas of focus. Current health disparities are originated from generational inequities, which is beyond our healthcare ecosystem. What do you believe we should be teaching our current and future generations to come? You know, a lot of what we've talked about today is based on our understanding of the world that we live in. And I think we all bring our lived experiences into our jobs and our environments. And we know that traditional, you know, uh, education in the schools of medicine, in our nursing schools, haven't always incorporated thinking about um, the systemic factors that create and perpetuate inequities. And so I, I think there is a, an opportunity and need for people to understand how policies like redlining have led to major gaps in generational wealth across communities of color and, and how those downstream impacts are seeing us today. We have a school of medicine at AKP and it's founded in part on embedding um, lessons around systems science into the, the curriculum. And while that's just one medical school, what I think is exciting about it is as we learn how to do that, we can share with others. Um, but I think what I'm hearing in your question is that we need a paradigm shift in both whom we recruit, how we educate, and how we support students so that we can take a different approach because we know the status quo hasn't been working for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. My intent for the question was also thinking about the entire value chain, the historical existence of a person and how that's being kind of cascaded and passed on to the future generations to come. And so if we don't address the root issues and we're just treating the symptoms, then we're just passing on the issues as more of an inheritance. What are some technologies you believe have been a blessing to address SDOH? Yeah, I'm going to answer your question in a slightly different way, which is to say, I think Technology can be a blessing and it can be a curse because it is, uh, it's a tool and it's a tool that allows us to amplify what we're doing. And when we're doing something well, we can amplify it with great effect. But when we're doing something poorly, we can sometimes actually make the situation worse. And I think technology is probably at this interesting precipice where it's doing both right now. There are places where we are making visible resources um, in our communities and making connections, which I think can be powerful, can allow us to capture data in new ways. And we know not everyone is taking advantage of these digital resources and some are being left behind. And that's not always across income factors. Sometimes that's across age and comfort with technology. And so I guess what I would say is I am a believer. I'm an advocate in the power of technology, but like most things in life, it, um, it's really about our intention and how we embed really thoughtful ways to make sure that we're having the desired effect and we're looking for unintended consequences. Absolutely. In the pursuit of health equity, what are some of your hopes and fears? My hope is, is simple, but aspirational. It's that everyone, regardless of their background and circumstances, can achieve their best health and live their best life because they have the support they need when they need it and want it. But we don't want zip code to be a stronger determinant of your life expectancy and well-being than your genetic code. And my fear is that 
as these tools and approaches get into regulations and other approaches, they can become um, almost like a checklist or a checkbox activity. And we might feel that we've accomplished our activity when we're everyone is being screened or that there are referral platforms in every uh, health system or community. And that's the beginning of the journey that gives us the data to understand what's working, what's not, it's not the destination. And so I hope, hope we can make sure we capture the attention and imagination of what's needed sort of overhaul um, the systems that haven't been created in weeks or years, but decades. And, will require ongoing work and focus. Yeah, I hope we make your fears go away, Anand. And this brings me to our last question. If you had to share three takeaways for the future of health, what would they be? My three takeaways would be, um, one, we cannot become a healthier country or achieve health equity without addressing social health. Number two, while health systems have a big role advancing this work, we can't do it alone. We will only be as strong as our partnerships and our sort of our cross-sector approach to supporting um, individuals and communities. And number three is that social risk is impacts everyone. Social health touches everyone. It's not a problem just for government-sponsored health plans like Medicare and Medicaid. It's not in some communities. It really touches us all in some way or another. And we need to really remember that these are some of the opportunities to touch people in profound ways. And we are so lucky, many of us, to be privileged to work in organizations or communities that are dedicated to doing this work. And um, I, I hope you all will feel excited about this and and really help change the conversation so this becomes a new normal in how we think about delivering and experiencing care um, in the U.S. Love your answers. Thank you so much for your time and the work you do. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Health Forward Podcast, and I'm your host, Smriti Kirbanandi.